Welcome to this JNMP podcast where this month we're looking at advances in epilepsy surgery. JNMP has recently published a review looking at advances in epilepsy surgery and with me today I have two of the authors. So I have Mark Noel, a neurosurgery trainee who's currently working towards a PhD at the Department of Clinical and Experimental Epilepsy and that's at UCL Institute of Neurology. So good afternoon Mark. Good afternoon. And I also have John Duncan, who's Professor of Neurology at Queen's Square. Good afternoon, John. Hello. So first of all, could you set the scene for us a bit? Perhaps give us an overview of the, the current use of epilepsy surgery in the UK. Okay. Well, of everybody who develops epilepsy in the UK, about a third are not going to do well with medication. And they're going to carry on having seizures, really, whatever medication is given to them. And for about half of those people the seizures arise in one part of the brain. In other words, it's a focal epilepsy. And in those people, if you can identify the part of the brain that's giving rise to the epilepsy, that's potentially curable by surgery. Provided, of course, the part that's causing the epilepsy could be removed without causing the person some serious new deficit, such as a hemianopia or dysphasia or a hemiparesis. In terms of the overall numbers, the epidemiology suggests that there should be about a thousand people a year being worked up for epilepsy surgery in the UK and there should be from that a thousand between five and six hundred going forward to having definitive surgical treatment and that's just the incident cases year on year. In addition there's a backlog of people who developed refractory epilepsy over the previous decades who are still continuing to have seizures, who haven't been referred. So the backlog is probably of the order of 10,000 patients throughout the UK. So how does that work for for individual patients? How long is it before the patients that need this surgery actually get it? One one of the tragedies uh, that's still, uh, still a problem nowadays is the long time patients with refractory focal epilepsy go before they're referred for consideration of treatment. By and large, if somebody is diagnosed with focal epilepsy, they have the basic investigations and they're started on treatment, one's going to know within two or three years, and that's the time it takes to try two or three of the first-line drugs, one's going to know within that time whether medication is going to be successful or not. So two or three years after the onset is the right time to consider whether surgical treatment is an appropriate avenue for that individual person. The tragedy is that nowadays... Uh, at our units and other units around the country that do this, the average interval between onset of focal epilepsy and potentially curative surgery is about 18 to 20 years. That's an awful long time because epilepsy will often begin in the first or second decade. So rather than having an illness that lasts two years and is then behind the person and they can get on with life, their development through schooling, college, getting jobs leaving the parental home, having partners, getting their own family, getting established in life, is really blighted. So even if then somebody becomes maybe seizure-free in the late 20s or early 30s, they've got an awful lot of catching up to do, which requires a big adjustment on their part. And you really feel that if they had been treated 15 years earlier, they would be in a much better place, as well as uh, they would have avoided the risk uh, occasioned by serious seizures going on week in, week out. To mm, so spend so much time looking for new treatments and kind of new advances where actually we're not making the most of, of this treatment that we, we have already. 
Well, was that the main reason that you wanted to, to do this review now, the fact that um, we're, we're not making the most of it? The main focus of the review is actually trying to look into the future and trying to see see what kind of broad um, advances can be made in the field. But I, I think we did see the review as an opportunity to to advertise the field of epilepsy surgery. Mm. And we do stress in the review as well that earlier referral is is pretty critical to, to patient outcome. So we are trying to push that as well. Great. In terms of looking at the, the future of epilepsy surgery, you, you break it down into to three pathways. Yeah, so it'd be really right. good if you could give us an overview of, of each of those areas. Sure. So the first one was looking at the refining the, the current methodology and, and what we're doing now. That's right. So maybe John would like to talk about about the current kind of pre-surgical evaluation and and how we can we can yeah. improve on that. I think uh, I'll just say that the field of epileptic surgery and the workup for this has been revolutionised over the last fifteen years by the development with MR brain imaging, mm. because good structural imaging will often show structural abnormalities that are the likely cause of the epilepsy, and as imaging gets better we always well, frequently see abnormalities that weren't evident previously. And that is, that is such an important step to take when one's considering uh, surgery. Now, of course, the, the rest of the pathway is equally important. One has to record the seizures with video and with EEG, you know, video EEG telemetry, mm. to get a pretty clear idea whereabouts in the brain the seizures are arising from. One needs to have the input from a neuropsychologist particularly to assess language and memory. And the idea here really is to see, is the part of the brain that you think is causing the epilepsy dysfunctioning? Is it, no, is it, or is it, is it functionally abnormal? And equally importantly, is the rest of the brain normal? Because one's going to get the best results uh, in terms of cognitive function if one's removing a part that is already abnormal and the rest of the brain is doing very well. A further, a very important step is to have a detailed neuropsychiatric assessment. Individuals with epilepsy, particularly if it's been difficult to treat, will often have psychiatric comorbidities, depression, uh, psychosis, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorders, and these need to be recognized and treated before putting the person through uh, neurosurgical uh, treatment. So that those combination of tests, the MRI, video EEG, psychology and psychiatry, are what we would call the phase one investigations. And at the end of that, we'd have a patient management conference, and the person could again go three ways. It might be that everything is very clear, the person has a structural lesion, that's clearly the cause of the seizures, and one can go straight to a neurosurgical resection without further tests. Secondly, it may be that the person is clearly not, not a surgical candidate, because the seizures may be coming from more than one place, and there's no single focus that can be identified. Or the third outcome could be that you think it's possible the person is good for surgery, but one needs to do further tests to try and pinpoint where it's coming from. And also, is that an area of the brain that could be removed without exposing the person to great risk? So in then that, that second phase of investigations, one might do further uh, imaging studies, say an ictal spect or an FDG PET scan, a functional MRI, and that may then lead one to do an intracranial EEG recording where having integrated all these 
uh, imaging modalities into common space, one would then want to design how one can place recording electrodes, EEG electrodes, into the, uh, through the skull, into the brain to pinpoint exactly where the seizures are coming from and to pinpoint that and see if that's an area that is not eloquent. In other words, to see if it's an area that could be removed without causing a new deficit. So this is all around selection, really, apart from that, the design and the location of the the surgery. But that's where we've we've seen big changes, is it? Yes, I think um, the both the acquisition of imaging and the multimodality processing of imaging allows one to visualise in three dimensions where the seizures are arising from, and also how that relates to critical structures that mustn't be disturbed, and that increasingly is, and this is work that Mark's doing as part of his PhD, uh, to allow one to design the, the least invasive investigation and to subsequently plan surgery with the maximum possible chance of a good result and with minimising the risk of causing new morbidity. And I think one way of, of optimising the planning of surgery is to have all of the available data shown in one place. So we're very interested in creating individualized models of a patient's brain as a computer, three-dimensional computer model. And then adding on top of that um, structural and functional regions of interest that we, that we get from the various other types of advanced imaging. And by having all of this data in one place, it's, it's, it's a great tool for neurologists to communicate with surgeons. And it's also a great tool for the surgeons to take into the operating theater to design their implantation of intracranial EEG and also further down the line to plan their cortical resections. Mm. So that's one of the, one of the big strands of, of work that we're concentrating on and we're interested in. I think another thing in terms of refinement of current methodology, which may be of interest in the future, is somehow visualizing the data that we can get from EEG recordings. So there's a group who've come up with this concept of an epileptogenicity index, which essentially assign, assigns a quantitative measure of how likely it is that the epilepsy is arising from certain coordinates in space. And I think you can imagine how, how putting that data into a three-dimensional computer model would further optimise the, the planning of any cortical resection. And then what about the actual surgery itself, the, the neuroablation? Mm. How much further do we need to, to get with this? Where are the advances there? <clears throat> well, I, think that, I think it's important to, to say to start with that um, conventional surgery is still old-fashioned open surgery where the patient has a craniotomy, which is a, a large opening in the bone to expose the brain. Uh, and then the part of the brain which we think is implicated in the seizures is, is removed. Now, that's a kind of a tried and tested technique um, and we know that with good patient selection you get very good results with this but I think for the future I think there is great interest in in moving surgery more down a, a minimally invasive pathway and there are a number of, um, kind of possible methods by which we can we can lesion the brain with a minimally invasive technique and I do touch on some of those in the review we have radiofrequency thermocoagulation, which is essentially applying current inside the brain through electrodes. There's some interest in using focused ultrasound, although I think I think that's very much early on in research. It's, it's not really in clinical practice for epilepsy. Perhaps the most promising technique is is the use of lasers uh, with real time feedback on on the warming of the the target. 
So that gives the surgeon control over the lesioning that they're doing, which I think is a real kind of step forward. Mm. And so I guess you can be incredibly accurate with that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the one of the keys is whether these minimally invasive uh, methods can achieve the same kind of seizure outcomes that you get with a gross resection. Mm. If you compare a gross resection where you've got the brain exposed and you remove quite a large volume of tissue, with these minimally invasive techniques, you're trying to try to interrupt the epilepsy pathway. But I think I think the jury is still out on whether with these less invasive approaches you're going to get the same kind of outcomes. So we're still waiting for the the evidence on that then? Yes, I think it's fair to say that these uh, these techniques that Mark refers to, particularly the um, lesioning with laser, has some very early results that there's a condition called hypothalamic hematoma, Mm. where there's a recent US series from Houston where 155 patients treated in this way did extremely well and actually much better than with open surgery. Mm. Now that's a particular circumstance whereby open surgery is very risky uh, to carry out. But it's certainly, it's, I think it's a proof of principle that is really very exciting. My sense is that we will do more of that over the coming years as that gets established. And that's not, a, not established, certainly in our hospital at the moment, but we hope it will be in the next uh, year or so. And I think it's something that will take hold. And I think the key is going to be designing the area that needs to be ablated. And as Mark intimates, just making one lesion in a pathway may well not cut it or may not give the answer, give, may not give the solution that you want because uh, the epileptic pathway may find a way around that. So it may be the case of actually lesioning quite a large area and disrupting the genesis of epileptic seizures that, that way. Mm. This is very much in the mm. beginning, but my sense is that if you can achieve that lesion without having to do a craniotomy, with all the risks of infection and the morbidity from open cranial surgery, that that is potentially uh, a better way forward for people. I mean, certainly when you're targeting deep-seated lesions, where open surgery would require a lot of brain retraction, and that carries with it morbidity. So Mm. it's probably going to be a case of finding the right technique for the right patient and the right pathology. So, for example, if the pathology is deep-seated and quite small, then then these minimally invasive techniques would would certainly be a, a good fit for that. Mm. So again, that's going back to the design and, and the preparation and getting that right. Yeah, I think it does feed mm. back to refinement of the current methodology because without accurate identification of where the seizures are starting, it kind of doesn't matter what surgery you do, you're mm. not going to get good results. Mm. Right. Um, and moving on to the the third pathway that you discuss in the paper, that mm. was um, neuromodulation. So talking about more about quality of life and, and palliation. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, currently we do see patients where we cannot offer them resective surgery. And those patients are candidates for, for deep brain stimulation. Mm. But that's very much a palliative procedure. I think at present it's, it's really aimed at improving seizure control as opposed to achieving seizure freedom. I think it's probably fair to say that we don't completely understand how the deep brain stimulation works. And there are a number of possible targets um, for stimulation. I think as a general rule, it's, it's probably true that it works either by interrupting the propagation of the seizures or by increasing the the threshold required for for seizures. Mm. One of the problems with deep brain stimulation currently 
is that with chronic stimulation, patients get neuropsychological side effects. So I think in the future, there's going to be a lot, a lot more interest in this, this concept of a closed loop stimulation, where patients will have intracranial electrodes connected to intracranial stimulators. And in that way, when a patient has a seizure or is about to have a seizure, you get a short period of stimulation. I suppose it's analogous to an implantable defibrillator. And with this technology, I think it's quite likely that you'd avoid the long-term side effects with the neuropsychological disturbances. But again, it feeds back to refinement of methodology because you would have to have your um, stimulators in, in the right targets and you'd also have to have your recording electrodes in the right place. But I, do, I certainly think that's a, a possibility for the future. Great. All we've really been able to offer here is an overview, so please go away, listeners, and, uh, and read the full paper and have a look at the references. Um, Mark and John, were there any final messages that you'd like to, to leave us with? I think for the neurologists, if there's somebody in your clinic with epilepsy that's not doing well despite medication, despite trying two or three medications, if there's a possibility that they could withstand neurosurgery, they should be referred for uh, the consideration of the evaluation. I think I'll second that. Brilliant. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you both very much for, for coming in and telling us more about it. Thank you. Thank you very much.